We have been duped by feminism, sexual liberation, and antidepressants. We have been told that we are powerful and free now as women, but we feel tired, wired, and bitter. We're mostly eating right, exercising, and meditating, wrangling to-do lists, and arranging playdates, and yet there's a haunting hollowness beneath the huge complaints. What if I told you that there is a huge storehouse, a reservoir of energy inside of you that has not been tapped, that you could feel light and pulsing, excited and alive in ways that a wellness lifestyle cannot deliver, that you could trust yourself, that the world could feel safe and that unexpected and expected delights could start to illuminate your path. No coach, therapist, doctor, or guru required. Just you learning to get real, present, and attentive with you. I feel like I'm here to matchmake your inner parts for the greatest love affair ever written. I want to help you learn first where you're buying eggs from the hardware store, which is the source of all pain. I want to help you master entering through the upset, which is the only spiritual practice you'll ever need and to get real comfortable putting on your villain crown, which is, in my opinion, the key to true power. And then you'll attune to your inner yes so you can live the life defined by the specific pleasure of who you are. I am so excited to announce my latest book called The Reclaimed Woman, which is available for pre-order now. So if you head to the link in show notes, you can learn more about bonuses, events, and companion offerings. And I cannot wait to see your gorgeous face on the path. I'm Dr. Kelly Brogan. You may know me as a New York Times bestselling author of a book with an exploding pill on the cover, renegade psychiatrist, pole dancer, or honorary member of the Disinformation Dozen. What can I say? I'm a born provocateur. I've spent most of my recent life exposing deceptions, connecting dots, and discovering the secret places my inner victim is still waiting to be liberated. And now I feel called to help you reclaim all of your parts, your health, your sexuality, your power, and your expression so that you can finally truly own yourself. I want to ignite in you that inner knowing and the pulsing vitality that lives beneath your disempowerment, disconnection, and resentment so that you can audaciously, courageously, and playfully alchemize your struggle into the specific pleasure of who you are. This is Reclamation Radio, a Soul Fire production. So I am so excited to be here with Sterna Suisa, who I have been fangirling about for actually a number of years now as in my opinion, the resource for what I call victimless parenting and this orientation towards the role of parenting, which of course reverberates in our own lived adult experience in terms of resources and paradigm and approach that is most resonant with my perspective on what it is to reclaim one's sovereignty. And I think that not a lot of folks in the truthing world, in the activism world, in the, you know, even creating a better experience on this plain world, talk about the role of the imprint of our 
emotionally insecure upbringings on our capacity to truly own ourselves in our adult experience. And the way that Cerna represents the opportunity, I'll call it that, that we have to own ourselves and to experience others, including our children, and maybe especially our children as sovereign beings is more than just like this token sort of like spiritual concept. Like she gets very practical about it and very real. And her Instagram is like basically, you know, PhD level education in how to, you know, (laughs) take on your proper comportment as a parent. So I am so excited to have you here. I've been wanting to talk to you for so long and I have like 12,000 questions. <laughs> so <laughs> I am going to keep my mouth, you know, running to a minimum. So thank you for being here with me, Sterna. Thank you so much for your kind words. It really means a lot to me. Thank you. So I want to really dive right in because I want to really showcase so much of the practical wisdom that you bring to bear in this arena. You know, I was really turned on to a lot of the premise, I think, that we both value in this realm by Alfie Cohn and his book, Unconditional Parenting, when he essentially talked about the shadow side of reward and praise. And of course, the enduring imprint of punishment and how punishment is a spectrum, right? From withdrawal and neglect all the way, of course, to frank abuse. So I want to really like start with the humble origins of some of the patterns that can really reverberate with so much pain and suffering in our adult lives and make us vulnerable to codependent and abusive and toxic relationships and dynamics and patterns, you know, that are hard to break out of. Because you talk about some of these humble origins. And I think that many of us are like, oh yeah, I'm doing the best I can. And you know, I'm not hitting or screaming at my kids. So I guess I'm doing better than my parents. But you talk about things like, you know, giving like a lollipop (laughs) to calm down a kid or, you know, getting a new toy when somebody, when they're, when a child is like upset about their broken toy or otherwise like intervening in like sibling disputes or, you know, when a child isn't sharing properly. And these are so, I have noted as I've become interested in this, they're so baked in to our reflexive unconscious impulses that I I think it takes a Herculean effort to bring awareness to this, right? Like how are we just unconsciously parroting that which we, you know, experienced as a kid and has been so normalized. So I want to talk about both like the seemingly benign thing. And then you talk about, and you share about how we are really gaslit as, as children and what the impact of that is. So I wonder if you could sort of just speak to you know, some of the normalized ways that we really, you know, rob children of an experience of themselves such that they, you know, grow into adults who really don't know who they are, what they want, or how to stand in their power. So what are some of the sort of like top things that you witness? Yeah, this is a really interesting topic that you're bringing up right now, because a lot of the things that we'll do as parents, sometimes will it comes from this, first of all, everything has good intentions, right? Like, Even let's say if a parent were to choose to punish their child, normally it's because they feel like we need to teach them better. There's always good intentions behind these actions. When it comes to punishments or threats and things like that, I think many parents, we can feel like, okay, I get why this is not okay. Like I understand, right? Like it just doesn't feel good. I'm telling my child that they're punished. They're grounded. They're not going to get the, you know, to watch a movie tonight. Like I, I understand why this is harming our relationship. 
And then when you get to the other side and you're like, okay, how about rewards? How about praising? It's like, oh wait, hold on. You know, these seem like, it's so nice. What am I doing wrong here? Like I'm praising my child. I'm rewarding their behaviors. Like how could this have a negative impact on my child? It kind of like, we really need to be open-minded to get to that space and feel like, okay, let me really look at what's going on here. And one thing that Alfie Khan says that is brilliant, he explains how, which you mentioned is that a punishment and a reward is the flip side of the same coin. So for example, let's say, you know, we want to go out as a family and have ice cream. Okay. And the house is a mess. My kids played, everything is everywhere. And I want the house to be clean as a parent. So I'm going to come and say, guys, let's clean up so that we can go have ice cream. So right now I'm telling my kids, you got to do this so that we can go out as a family and have ice cream. Now, if one child says, you know, mom, I don't want to clean up right now. Well, we're not going to go for ice cream. So now the ice cream, which was presented as a reward, as something pleasant that we're going to do as a family, now I've decided to take it away from you because you're not doing what I'm asking of you to do. Not even like, let's not even get into the fact that it's food, right? That's like a whole other topic. The fact that I'm choosing food to be a reward. But whatever we're saying to our child here is you need to do this so that you can receive this from me. And if you don't do that, now the child feels like it's a punishment. So we might feel like it's a reward. However, on the other hand, our child, what they're living is this feeling of like, if I don't do what my mother's asking, then I will not be going out with them for ice cream. So it's basically a form of manipulation, right? Like that's what we're doing to our children. So the advice I would give here is really to break apart what we're asking of our child. And each thing is something separate. Like if we want to offer something to our kids, we can offer it just because we love them as they are. Guys, we're going out for ice cream. Let's go have a good time. And if it's time for something to get tidied up or cleaned up, then that's another discussion separate than what we're, you know, so really moving away from using the things that we are going to give our children in a way for them to comply with what we're asking. And when kids are very young, if we think about it, like they're completely independent on us. They can't go out and buy their own ice cream. They can't call a friend and go out. They can't nothing. Like they're totally dependent on us. And so it's so understandable that a young child will do what they're being asked for whatever we're offering. You know what I mean? Because it's like, that's their only way that they're going to get it. So there's no choices that are being offered to them. There is no choice. They're totally helpless, dependent on us. So that's why also these things really mark us as we get, you know, as we grow older, because we're so impressible, like as children, these things really, really, you know, they mark us. Like we're in a situation where it's like, okay, or I clean up or I can't go out, you know, like it's, we're really stuck. And oftentimes we'll do what our parents are asking us. And we put aside our own needs and we put aside how we feel about things. And we put aside all of those things so that we're pleasing the other so that we're given, you know, basic needs, really, if we think about it. And we get enculturated around this dynamic of responsibility for another's experience, right? So that you talk a lot about entitlement. And I'm very interested in that because of the way that it has manifested in the health and supposedly public health space, right? Like as if we have responsibility for someone else's health that can be leveraged quite handily, right? By those in authoritarian power. So 
this idea that as a child, I am responsible for the emotional stability, for you know the management of my parents' experience. The flip side of that as an adult can be, right, that a sense of entitlement, right? Like you owe me. You have exactly. to manage my experience. And we all, you know, can see the shadow dimensions of that. So it's not just that you're a lifelong caretaker managing everybody around you so that you can feel safe because that's what you learned as a kid. It's also that you can fall into that space of, well, everyone is responsible. Everyone in my life is responsible for how I feel and they have to change in order for me to feel okay, you know, which is the bedrock of a dependent dynamic too. So it's just, it's like this, these tentacles just grow out of that simple example. Yes. Yes. And, and even to take it up a notch is like when a parent comes and sees the mess and wants everything cleaned, oftentimes it's even deeper than the mess. It's, I need you guys to make me feel good in this house right now. Like clean this up. I can't be this way. So it's like the kids are now burdened with I need my mother to be happy right now. And we have to put all this away, make this space look good. So she feels good. So we're making her feel a certain way and we're responsible for that. And then, like you said, of course, they then transmit that in their relationship where if they're sad, then why isn't someone trying to make them happy? Like you need to do what I'm telling you right now because you're responsible for my happiness. And so we transmit that, you know, vice versa, like you're saying, yeah. So this is such an important, I mean, this is like one of the most important things anyone could possibly hear pretty much ever. So I just want to like put in neon lights, what we're about to talk about, which is developing the capacity to feel feelings, literally the physiologic, psychological capacity to stay within a feeling state is the essential aspect of sovereign relating, right? So how can you possibly not seek to control, manipulate, and otherwise abuse someone else if you cannot be with your own feeling state? Of course, you're going to need them to regulate you. And what happens when the parent is the one needing that from the child? That is the inversion, right, of the natural relationship. So when a parent cannot be with their feeling state, we might imagine in our mind's eye, like, oh, they're screaming or, you know, in some sort of like tantrum as a parent, right? But it can look in these small ways, right? These teeny little ways where you end up trying to fix something or responding somewhat defensively before you take that little moment, right? To just sort of be with whatever is in the room in yourself and in your child. So, what is, you know, the way to enter into this very deep realm of like personal work, you know, maturational development as an adult? How do we recognize when we are not, you know, in willingness to sit with our own experience? Like how can it look, right? When we are trying to discharge our own discomfort onto our kids. Oftentimes parents will tell kids things like, I'm going to be so upset if you do that, right? Like I, I'm so angry because you did this. I'm really blaming our child for the way that we feel. If you do that, you know, sometimes like people think it's a joke to tell a toddler, I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry if you don't do this. Like go to your bed or else I'm going to cry. Like trying to show them that you can't make me feel sad. Like if you make me feel sad, then it's bad. Then it's not good. And if we think about it, like, There are so many situations, especially as children grow older, where it's important for them to say no to something, even if the other person is upset, like that's okay, right? The other person's upset. We can have empathy for that. And we can also stick to our boundaries. But from a young age, we might be teaching our children, like, 
I'm going to be so angry. You know, daddy's going to be upset if you do this. Mommy's going to be upset. I can't believe you did. You hurt my feelings. Why are you doing this? So all about like telling that child, you're responsible for the way that I'm feeling. And this can feel very, very heavy on a child. Already, children already are born in order for them to survive childhood. They are born with an egocentric stage of development. So meaning their whole environment, they believe is a reflection of them, right? So let's say if I'm going to be upset with my child, naturally, they're going to think something is wrong with me. My mother's upset with me. Why? Because a child needs to feel safe. And so if they weren't egocentric and think like something's wrong with me, then the other alternative to that is something's wrong with my mother. Why is she so upset? And if something's wrong with my mother, hold on, I'm not safe here. My mother has all of my needs. Uh Oh, I'm not safe. But because a child is wired to survive, they are in an egocentric stage of development. So already naturally, children take in their environments as a reflection of their own self. So naturally, if we get upset, if we lose patience, they will feel like it has to do with them. And then when we add on top of that, saying to them clearly, like, you're making me upset, that just accentuates already what they might be already feeling. So it's so important to, as parents to constantly tell our kids when we lose patience, when we get upset, which is going to happen, we are human, to mention to them, this has nothing to do with you. I'm working through things. I'm feeling exhausted. I haven't eaten since the morning. I'm going to figure this out. This has to do with me. It has nothing to do with you. You're acting exactly as a child should be acting. There's nothing wrong with you. I need to work through this and I'm going to figure this out. And next time I'm going to work on being more patient with you, not raising my voice. And we share with them what we want to do in the future. But when we, so basically back to what you were saying, like this responsibility of I'm responsible for how everybody feels, not only is it natural for a child to feel that way, on top of that, it actually like imprints them for their whole life because this is the foundational years where they're learning. How do we have a loving relationship, right? How are we in a relationship? What are the boundaries? What are, how do we navigate our, each other's emotions? How do we navigate each other's needs and wants and all of that? So it really is like this blueprint for all of their relationships. So it really has a long lasting effect, you know, when we handle these situations in these ways. And another thing I just want to circle back on, because we gave the example when it came to a reward, but I also want to circle on to the punishment and punishments also include when I'm going to impose a consequence on a child, right? If I say like, you're not having your iPad for the rest of the day, like that's considered Some people call it a consequence, but it's the same thing as a punishment. What I want to say here is if let's say we tell a child, right, you didn't do this, you didn't please me, you didn't do what I was asking you to do. So now here's your punishment or consequence, however you want to call it. That child then, as we were saying with the rewards, but this is with the punishments will also mirror that back in their relationships. So if somebody pisses them off or doesn't do something that pleases them and they're unhappy about something, then they feel like, okay. I need to indirectly cause pain to this person. I need to punish them. So maybe I'm going to give them the silent treatment. Maybe I'm going to call them names. Maybe I'm going to take something that I've given them and say, I want that back. And I feel like that's what's going to help the situation when really it doesn't, right? It causes more disconnection in relationships and it causes more friction. So the same way we come in and we like 
punish a child, then they feel like they also have to do that to others, you know? So that's also something that's really important for parents to understand, I think, when it comes to punishments where many parents think that they're teaching their kids to do better, but really it's teaching them to lack empathy towards others and to handle their own conflicts in harmful ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, you know, I talk a lot about the reclamation of choice, you know, in that example you just described, when we seek to balance the scales of our discomfort through, you know, imposing consequences, that's such a helpful term. We don't see that there are choices that we have, right? We have choices to orient towards the situation in many different ways. And if we don't like what's happening, we can exercise that power of choice. But that gets buried under this victim consciousness field when we imagine that somebody else owes us anything or that it's important that we maintain a certain level of control over the situation. And, you know, a lot of the normalized abuse that you expose, you know, whether it's love bombing or gaslighting or ghosting and the ways that we do this as parents, you know, I remember like early in my daughter's life saying things like, you know, when you calm down, we'll talk, right? So I was very committed to never yelling and screaming, never, of course, being, well, not of course, but never being physically abusive in any way, like never something you could witness, right? But this, this subtle sort of like, control yourself. And then I will yeah. feel okay interacting with you. Meanwhile, not really investing in teaching her because I didn't know myself how to self-soothe or how to self-regulate or how to even for a moment be with the experience of her own dysregulation, if you want to call it that. Right. So something that I'm very interested in is how do we cultivate as parents this intention to allow our children to be in a different reality, right? Because, you know, what's referred to obviously in the field as enmeshment trauma is one of the most disabling experiences as adults, right? When we feel that we, you know, need to merge with somebody else in order to feel secure and safe. And then when there are differences or there's a divergent experience or perspective, like we don't know how to orient in that, right? So like, how do we allow our children to have a different experience? And I think, and I know you do too, to visit with their experience first, right? Which we have to be able to hold ours. And I've spoken publicly about, you know, an experience that I've had, and I continue to have with my daughters of asking them, you know, periodically, you know, is there anything that you need from me that you don't feel I'm giving you? And is there anything that's still bothering you about me or an experience that you've had, you know, with me as your mama that feels like it still like upsets you when you think about it? Like, can we talk about it? And through those two questions, like I have been exposed to, (laughs) you know, things I would rather not hear, right? Yeah. How can I like get into it? You talk about like, tell me more space. Like how do I get to this place of like visiting with their experience instead of needing them to support and soothe mine. And two of the ways I see this coming up is in how parents relate to their children lying. And then also just sort of the subtle defensiveness, right? So you know, like if my daughter is like, I don't like sardines, you know, she's declaring, I do, right? Okay. So like, she's declaring she has a different experience in life. One of the reflexive things I might do is like, yeah, but like, have you ever put like oil and vinegar on them? They're so good. Right. Instead of being like, oh, really? How, like, what about them? Don't you like, right? So it seems like benign, but it's, I've noticed that there are so many ways where when I have a perspective that's different than there's about music, about anything, I almost want to 
subtly manipulate them into seeing my perspective instead of prioritizing visiting with theirs. You know, I had yes. to I'll just share yes. briefly. I was on my computer, right? And I have, I use whatever, it doesn't matter, messaging app, let's say, and on my desktop. And my daughter comes by and she's looking. And I have my eldest daughter pinned with a bunch of other people at the top of the messaging app, because you can pin like a couple of people you want their notifications like first, right? And so my youngest daughter, who I don't really do a lot of like texting with, was like, hey, how come I'm not pinned like (laughs) up there, right? And instead of saying, oh yeah, you're not pinned there. What does that mean to you? Or like, what are you sad about that? Or does it upset you? Does it make you feel not important? Like, how do you feel about that? Right. Tell me more. I was like, well, you never text me. That's (laughs) what I said instead. Right. So that was because I felt her upset. I didn't want to hold my upset about her upset in my body. Mm -hmm. And so instead I was defensive needing to be right about why I was doing what I was doing. So these subtle ways of being defensive about our own reality instead of visiting with a child. And then also, how do we relate to when children lie to us? You know, because this is a topic that's come up, you know, in co-parenting and, you know, this assumption that lying is bad and you should be punished for lying, right? And the idea of like, well, is it just upsetting for the parent, like, does it just feel bad for the parent to be deceived or, and, you know, is it important for us to look at like, why might this be happening? And why is it probably totally normative and even healthy, you know, on the part of a child? So I'd love to hear, you know, a little bit more about sharing realities. Okay. First, let's go back to what you said first. I love that example where you said, calm down and then we'll talk about it. What happens there is that it's so easy for us as parents to shut our child down instead of expanding, right? You stop feeling this way so that I don't have to sit in this discomfort versus telling my child, like expanding my own body and working on my own self and not shutting down my child. So I feel like sometimes this is what's happening between us and our child, right? Like, or we're going to shut them down so that we can avoid expanding, or we're going to work on expanding and not shut them down. So this actually ties back to what we were talking about before, because what you're describing is like, even with the texting is you're taking it personally. And that's what we've been doing it as children, right? As children, we take our environment personally. And then, like I said before, when our parent tells us and shows us that we're responsible for how they're feeling, like that just gets accentuated. Like, oh yeah, I am responsible for how others feel. So if somebody now my child is going to come to me and they're not calm and they're not happy and they're crying. I'm taking that personally. So if my child's coming and saying, I'm not pinned, how come? Hey, wait, we don't text it. Like I'm taking it personally. Their emotions are my responsibility. And that's what I'm showing my child, right? Like, why are you feeling this way? Look what I did. You can't feel this way. Look at my actions. I'm responsible for how you're feeling versus understanding that we each have our own experience. And I think that that's one of the most important parts about parenting is understanding that we have our experience and our kids have their own experience, you know? And an example that I like to give is, for example, me and you, Kelly, we were watching a movie and we're watching this movie and I'm laughing the entire movie. I find it hilarious. And you're like next to me and you're crying. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Kelly, you're crying. Like, this is hilarious, this movie. And we're watching the same exact story. 
However, you have your own experiences that make you see through these lenses of yours that for you, you're feeling pain. And for me, I'm feeling like laughing. It's fun. I love this movie. And it's the same story. And so sometimes, and like, there's no right or wrong. You see what I mean? Like who's right or wrong for laughing or crying? Like there is no right or wrong. It's each of us with our own experiences. And that's how it is with our children. So sometimes we can have an experience and we experience it one way. Our child experiences another way. And just understanding that whatever experiences they're having is reflecting their own inner world. So if our child is feeling hurt or sad or angry about something, then that means within them, there is something that hurts them. And it doesn't have to necessarily be about us. Dr. Shefali has this quote. I don't know if I'm going to get it right, but basically she says something like, it's really painful for us as parents to see our children in pain. And what's even more painful for a child is to see that their parents can't see them experiencing pain. Like that's even more painful than the actual pain they're experiencing, you know? So I think it's so important to kind of feel like there is, we're, we're not one with our child. And when our child comes with pain, it's not a reflection of our parenting. It's not a reflection of who we are. Beliefs that we might have held on to as children, right? As children growing into adults now, we might have these beliefs because our parents made us feel that way. But we can move through that and we can be like, you know, reminding ourselves, there's also this famous mantra that's very, I don't know by who it is, but it's basically my child is having a hard time. They're not giving me a hard time. You know, that division between this is their experience. It has nothing to do with me. And when we show up in that way, we can actually help our children and our children can feel safer coming to us because they know that we're not going to get, you know, enmeshed in their emotions. We're not going to also feel like how they're feeling and now they lost their support because that's what's essentially happening, Right. When your child comes and telling you, hey, I'm not pinned. And then you're like, wait, hold on. What do you mean? Like you never, now it's like, okay, you feel like how I'm feeling now. So I kind of lost that supportive parent that I thought, you know, can work through this with me and can get curious with me and can say, well, how would you feel if you were pinned? And do you feel I love you less because you're not pinned, you know, and getting curious in that way. So what happens is when we feel all those emotions coming in, we lose the access to our logical part of our brain, right? So sometimes pausing on these moments, I know it's really hard (laughs) to pause during these moments. So something I like to tell parents, and I'll just give like a tip here, which has really been transformative in my life and for many other parents is setting an alarm on your cell phone, whether it's one alarm, two alarms, three alarms. And whenever that rings, you're just gonna, you know, check in with yourself and take a deep breath and pause, just notice how you're feeling so that you're gaining more awareness so that when you're on these moments and our child comes to us and tells us, hey, you didn't do this, we're learning to gain more awareness. We're learning that, okay, our breath is right there. We can take a deep breath. We can pause. We don't have to answer our child right away if we feel like, you know, now is not the best time. You know, let's talk about this soon. And then you can process what's happening. Take your time. Oftentimes we feel like things are an emergency. Like we have to answer right away. We have to do this right away. And that again, comes from our childhood, right? Because if we didn't clean right away, then our parent would be super upset with us and we would lose out on going out for ice cream or whatever that case was. So we feel the sense of urgency when really now we can let go of that. It's okay. Like, you know, it's not an emergency. We can just sit there with their discomfort. And if we don't know what to say, we can say, let's think this over together think it over. There's no urgency to, to these moments, you know? 
I hope that answers your question, the first part, at least before we get into the lying. Totally. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Take it away. Okay. So lying is really interesting for parents listening. I know you have older kids for parents listening to this that have children under the age of five, under the age of five, imagination is blurred with reality for a five-year-old. They're so imaginative in their brain. So I wouldn't be too focused on the lying aspect. If a child is, you know, coming to tell you the tree is yellow, for example, you know, this happens like a young child, like the tree is yellow. And you're like, Hey, the tree's not yellow. Like, why are they lying? It could just be like, this is their imagination. So again, back to that movie where I said, this is your reality. This is my reality. We just say, Oh, Hey, you see it yellow. And I see it, you know, brown and green and leave it at that. We don't have to make children feel like they're lying. That's really important because sometimes we can make them feel like they're lying when really they're not. And then they feel like, Hey, I guess I don't say the truth or I guess, you know, there's something wrong with me. So we'll pause here for a message from our sponsor, my membership community, Vital Life Project. So if you want to hang with me, ask me questions in live coaching, get free access to my masterclasses, curated content, discounts, and to the incredible humans that I attract. My membership, Vital Life Project, is where it's at. It's the only membership of its kind, and you'll shed your struggle, transform your victim story, and level up your reclamation game with others who get it. Join at the link in show notes and at kellybroganmd.com. Another thing to keep in mind is let's say your child is younger and also for teens. So this applies for all kids. I'm going to give an example for a younger child and then I'll give an example for an older child. So let's say we have a younger child, whatever age, we ask them not to touch the blue paint. Okay. And then we come down and we see there's blue paint, handprints everywhere. And it, we're pretty sure our child touched this because there's nobody else in the house. So we know a thousand percent it's them. And we come to them and we say, hey, did you touch the blue paint? Now the child is in a position to lie. They either have to say yes, or they either have to say no. So we place them in this situation. Now, children are wired to feel safe and to survive, and they don't want to upset us, especially if we've, you know, shared experiences where we get upset when they don't do what they're being asked. So they might say no in order to feel safe, but we know for sure that they touched it. They're all full of blue paint. Like this is not, so then we're going to be like, you're lying. Why are you lying? And then this creates even more disconnection. And we've lost the opportunity to brainstorm whatever situation we're faced with our child. And we're stuck in this situation of like, kind of like this battle where we're telling our child you're lying. And they're like, no, I'm not. And this, and now a lot of disconnection and it's not helpful in any way. So whenever we're in a situation where we know for certain our child has done something that we've asked them not to, or we know for certain they've done something, it's best not even to ask. Like why even put them in that situation? Just go straight into what's going on, right? Like you come down and you see the blue paint everywhere. So you go to your child and you say, wow, I see how hard that was for you not to touch this blue paint, right? That was really, really hard for you. You wanted to touch it so badly and now there's blue paint everywhere. Wow, what can we do about this? Do you want to help me clean up? A child who is more relaxed and calm in their body will want to cooperate more and be like, yeah, I really wanted to touch it. It was fun and they'll help us clean it up. And then we've learned from this experience that our child has a hard time and maybe we want to put the blue paint somewhere high up so that it's not reachable for them. And we learn through these experiences of what our child is capable of doing, what our child isn't capable of yet and needs our help through that. So for example, an older child, do you want to give a real life example or should I make one up for a teen? 
I don't, I don't have like a lived experience of it actually, which is why I'm a believer that like, there is a way to create the conditions, especially for like an older kid where there is, you know, sort of amnesty for honesty kind of a thing, you know, there is a consequence less reality. So I don't have a lived example, but let's say like, you know, tech, right? Because a lot, you mentioned food. And I think that tech and food are like two of the overcoupled entities when it comes to punishment and reward and the way that we control our children, right? So let's say, you know, there is an agreement. So I have an agreement with my kids that we put like, you know, our devices away at a certain time at night. And so let's say I have a suspicion that my daughter like got on her device after she went to bed and she's saying, no, no, I didn't do that. And I'm saying, well, okay. I did, right. Okay. So it's, it's a tricky situation when it's a suspicion versus yeah. when we're a thousand percent sure. Like if we're at that, like we see the light on the device, like it was just touched, you know what I mean? Then we know for certain our child has touched that device. So let's start with for certain. Okay. Let's say we're sure our child touched the device. Now there's probably a need for why that child had to go on that device. There was probably a really important reason why she felt she had to go on that device. So we really want to come in with that, right? Because we want our child to open up to us and to work through whatever, you know, boundaries we've set. And now we see that are hard for them. So kind of like, Hey, I see the device is on, you know, did something come up that you needed to really talk to your friends about? And then we can hear what they have to say, right? Okay. So now we hear their perspective. And then we also have this boundary. And so we can say like, okay, we've settled that at this time, there's no more devices. What do you think next time this happens? Like, what if next time you, the situation comes up again and you feel the need that you have to tell your friend something, what do you think we should do? And really, especially when kids are older, we don't want to be the ones to be like, okay, next time this happens, you have to come and tell me. Cause then that's very overpowering versus empowering that child with taking those decisions. And oftentimes, you know, our children are wise enough to understand and to be like, you know what, mom, okay, so next time this happens, how about I do this, right? And they'll come up with something. And then you as their mother will be like, hey, you know what, that works for me. And if it doesn't, then you could say, it doesn't work for me because, and then we can share why, the reasons, right? And to really work through those things together. Notice how if I went to tell my child, did you touch the device? I'm putting them in a situation right there and then when I know the answer. So why create that disconnection? Why go there when really it's not about staying stuck on the issue and if they did this or not, it's really problem solving what's going on and making it better for a future whenever these things come up. Now, let's say we're hesitant. We don't know. We have a suspicion. That's really tricky because I can't tell my child, like, I noticed you went on the device. Like, so if we have a suspicion, maybe we can share something like, hey, you know, I'm wondering, is it hard for you not to use the device? Like after a time, like, is that hard for you? You know, sometimes me too. It's hard for me when I say to myself, like, that's it. I'm not on my cell phone past this hour and I put it away. Sometimes I find my body brings me back to my phone. Let me just check. Let me just this. Like, do you feel that sometimes? And then work through that, right? Sometimes putting in a password or putting it in a a place where they don't know where it is can help them. And this is normal because it's so hard. We're so addicted to our cell phones. I know for myself also, like I tell myself, that's it, no more. And then I'm like, hey, hold on, let me go look. But when I lock my phone or when I put it, you know, 
or tell my partner, put this away. I don't want to know where it is. Then that helps me. So sometimes if we feel like there's a suspicion going on, like maybe just sharing, like, is this a struggle? Do you think we need to help ourselves more through this? Like how, what's going on with you in regards to this boundary, you know, and really discussing it with them. Totally. Empathy. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, so simple. So amazing. I, I want to speak relatedly about this concept of manners, right? Because I think when we're in the realm of obedience, compliance, and cooperation or conformity to our expectations, there are a lot of assumptions around, well, of course you tell your child to say, tell her thank you, you know, or give your uncle a hug goodbye, or, you know, that's rude. Don't like, don't chew with your mouth open or whatever. And I, for whatever reason, early on have been totally allergic to this. And even, you know, in, in the extended family, if somebody would be like, it's nice to say thank you, or it's not, you know, don't, don't throw your food there, whatever. I would like bristle, you know, like, how dare you, (laughs) you know, tell my child when to say thank you. So there must've been some sensibility that I had around being told to please, you know, another for the purposes of artifice is not really the vibe I was looking for, but I am so interested now in how this obsession that many parents have with so-called manners, politeness, and really just the concept of obedience is of course the foundation of an authoritarian, totalitarian uh, dynamic with our, you know, rulers, if you will, and how essential that is, that unconscious reflexes to establishing a social control grid. And so this is where it starts. And why would we, what is the alternative, right? Like, do you just not care and you raise these like savage beasts, right? Yeah. Is it really important to examine like why it matters? Like, why is it important? Is it really just so that I look a certain way as like a mother, if my child is nice and polite and says, thank you, or even I'm sorry, right? So like when we say, go say you're sorry. And so what are the consequences in your opinion of imposing this framework of obedience and compliance and politeness onto our kids? Yeah. Well, the the biggest consequence is we have children that are It's a tough word, what I'm going to say, but kind of like a robot and that they're not being authentic, right? We're literally just telling them, say this, say this, say that. All of those things are empty words just so that we can feel good as parents Right. versus the strongest way to teach children to be polite and have manners and treat others with respect is by treating them that way. What's interesting is that when we tell a child, go say, sorry, I can't believe you did that. We want to teach them to have empathy to others while lacking empathy towards them on these moments, while telling them, you go say sorry, you go, like, that's just going against what actually we're trying to tell them. So sometimes trying to make a child have manners, we're lacking manners towards them. Like, oh, go say thank you. Go, like, we're, we're, is that being, res- like, you know what I mean? Like, that's not having good manners. Like, what's going on here, right? In an attempt to try to teach manners and teach respect and teach empathy. We're lacking all of those things to our child. And so the opposite is being modeled to our child. So it's really important to actually think the question you just brought up, like what's going on here? Why do I feel the need to tell my child? Like that's a really important question to ask ourselves as parents. Why do I feel the need to come and tell my child what to say, how to be, who to hug, who to kiss, who to do? Like, why? Is it because I need to feel good and look good as a parent? And then again, that kind of, brings that child to be like this extension of ours, which they aren't. What happens is 
when a child is, you know, does something and they are lacking manners. Well, I just want to go back a bit. One of the most interesting things that I've noticed is as soon as a child starts to talk, okay, like think about it. We have a little baby at home and now they're starting to say like water, this, that, like slowly they're building up words. And then suddenly they're being told, say, please say this, say that. Like, it's just so much pressure, like so much pressure on a child. Like I'm trying to learn Spanish right now. And if somebody came and said, say this word, say it, like I would feel so <laughs> overwhelmed. Like kids are literally just learning how to speak a language, how to communicate. And the pressure that can be felt on these moments is really unfair to put on kids. Like that's just like a side note besides, you know, what's going on in regards to at telling them to please everybody around them. So you brought up so many things. Do you want to break it down? Because you brought up the thank you, the please, the hugs and kisses, the sorry. Do you want to like go through each of them? Quickly? I think they're, they're so related, right? Like they're so related whenever we, it's like you're saying, whenever we feel that impulse to control. I mean, I call it like entering through the upset, right? Like whenever you feel upset about yeah. someone else's <laughs> behavior, are you in that mirror, right? It's exactly what you said. Like if I, if I say to my daughter, like, why do you always feel like you have to be right about everything? Literally in that moment, I am trying to be right about exactly. Them, right. And, you know, for me, the most helpful thing to bear in mind is exactly what you started to touch on, which is, I don't know where I came across this early on. Thankfully it was like, can I speak to my children the way I would speak to a friend, mm. right? And, and would I tell my friend, clean your plate before you go out into the other room? Like, no, of course I wouldn't, right? And so, so that, right, it begins to sort of lift the, the veil, I guess, of like whatever this intoxication we have with overpowering these beings, which of course is something that we learned, right? Like how would we speak to, and, and with the manners thing, it really is relevant, right? Like, I would never say to my friend, like, say thank you to him. <laughs> yeah. Or like, also, why don't you yeah. have it? Yeah. Also, what we're showing our child is that we're more concerned with how others feel than how yes. they feel. Yes. You know what I mean? And we're putting others, placing them before how our child feels about whatever situation we're in. What I suggest in these moments, whenever we feel there's the need for something to be said, whether it's thank you, whether it's please, whether it's you know, I'm so sorry you got hurt, whether it's, you know, a hug and a kiss, right? Let's say we feel that something, you know, needs to be done. Let's say we can step in and do it, right? So let's say our child hurts somebody and we see that our child needs help navigating that, but then there's a child that's crying, then we can go step in and model to our child how we go about someone who's hurt, and go to see them and say, I'm so sorry you got hurt. Do you need anything? Can I give you a hug? Right? And be there for that child. And our child is watching. Our child might not do everything that we tell them to do, but they're clearly watching all of our actions and will most likely repeat the way we handle situations. So focus on ourselves rather than trying to get our child to complete the image we want or the needs that we have. So on these moments, if we feel like thank you needs to be said, and our child didn't say thank you because they got distracted by what was given to them because it was so colorful and they're already playing with it, then we can say out loud, thank you so much for thinking of my child and buying this for them. Look how happy they look. They're playing with it. They love it. Thank you so much. This means so much to us. Our child is hearing. They're going to pick up 
they're going to pick up at the right time. And it's never on these moments that, you know, these are the teaching moments. We can have discussions also at a later time, right? How do we go about when somebody gives us something that we like, right? What do we do? But the most impactful way to teach children is by us treating them in that way. Right. We say thank you when they do something. We appreciate the things that they're doing. We say, you know, an apology and repair when we mess up, when we hurt them, when we, you know, so stepping into the way we want them to be, us being that way. It's so much easier as parents to demand things of our kids, but our, how, what are we modeling? Right. That's really, really where, you know, all the teaching takes place is our own being, how we are with them. And when we worry about, you know, other people, then that's our worry. We could say what we want to say. Why place that on our child? You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. And it's, it's the difference between inspiring and like demanding, right? So it, it's also what is often reflexively engaged in the realm of like respect and gratitude, right? So even between ourselves and our child, like this idea that our children owe us respect or owe us some sort of gratitude because we, you know, buy them food and put a roof over their yeah. head and like do all these things for them. Like after all I've done for you kind of psychology, right? So can we, should we, you know, demand that they respect and thank us for these things? Or is there, you know, a way that we might inspire that and value it if it does come and otherwise recognize that they don't actually owe that, you know, to us or anyone, right? What is it to live in a world where we actually don't owe anyone anything and we take total responsibility, you know, for our experience. But I think it requires, right, that we start to even just this idea like of that our kids don't owe us anything, right, is, is very difficult. I've watched for many to sort of wrap their mind around, right? Well, of course they do, you know, after all I've done, they do. Owe yeah. I think that's a lot of people that hold on to that. It's because their parents have made them feel that way. And it can be so painful to realize like, hey, wait, that was never any of my responsibility. I didn't owe anything to my parents. So just facing that can be so painful. So we want to just repeat that cycle and feel like my kids owe me so much because of all the things that I'm doing. Reality is, is that our kids don't owe us anything and we're the ones that owe them. We owe them. We have the responsibility of providing them with all of their needs. We have the responsibility to work on ourselves and show up as best as we can for our kids. We have the responsibility to make them feel safe in our home, to emotionally connect with them. They don't owe us anything. And I think when we're in this mindset, something really interesting takes place is that you see children naturally love us unconditionally. They do. They love the parents unconditionally. And we can either take advantage of this, you know, and use it in, as like, to manipulate them and all of that, or not to manipulate them and to treat them with respect. And the interesting part is that the less a child is forced, the more they actually want to. Right. They want to be close to their parents. They want to be there for their parents. They want to have a relationship and enjoy themselves with their parents. How many adult children dread spending time with their parents? Dread it. Like they can't handle it. They feel annoyed by it. They feel burdened by it because it kind of feels like you owe this to them. But what if you didn't have any of that, right? What if your parents knew that I'm the one that I'm the giver, you're the receiver. That's just how it is. You're the child, I'm the parent. And then when children grow up, interestingly, they might want to hang out with us on their own. Right. 
I think, you know, when you, when you talk about this idea of like the parent owing and the child not, and that sort of, that there are elements of the dynamic that could be, I don't know, that they're, they're sort of like separate energies that we bring that are also organizing to the dynamic, right? That there's this polarity. One of the realms that I think is challenging is how do we know when we know better, right? So one of the things I have, so I I live with, you know, my two daughters half of the time, and I have committed to creating an environment so that they can have an experience that I didn't have of knowing what it is that they want. So honoring their desire, And so we have a rule where none of us do anything that we don't want to do, (laughs) period. So if I don't feel like going to, you know, an event that's at their school or whatever, I literally don't go. And if, you know, I planned a trip, you know, to go visit my, one of my girlfriends a few hours North. And on the night before this weekend trip, my daughter was like, you know, mama, I don't want to go. And I was like, okay, well, am I going to leave her home? Am I going to have her with someone else? And I was actually, what was exposed was that the trip was like kind of poorly conceived. Like it was like, I wanted to go hang out with my girlfriend. And I was like dragging my kids along. They didn't want to be there, you know? Mm. So we didn't go, right? So there's, it's not always easy, but what I find is that there's actually like a lot of flow that emerges for the reasons you're saying, right? Where if everyone is free to actually like honor their impulses and desires, then things kind of end up being more organically functional, ironically. However, I check myself when I imagine that I might know better and, and, you know, there might be a situation where I think, you know, my daughter should do something or like go to try that pottery class. Like, you know, you might be sort of like a little nervous about like meeting new people, but it's going to be so worth it. Just do it. Right. So this idea that we know better and, you know, I don't actually, I'm not a supporter of school. (laughs) So I'm not a believer. I myself like am in the unschooling camp in terms of my life philosophy. However, my children have chosen to go to school and, you know, the opposite is probably true in a lot of other households where, you know, the children don't want to go to school and the parents know that it's (laughs) in their best interest to go. And, you know, it'll be worth it later. So like, are there ever any scenarios where we do know better and we should run counter to our children's desire, will, or preference. Mm, Yeah. What you're bringing up is sometimes very tricky to navigate and something really to think through. There are so many situations where I feel like sometimes a parent might feel the need, right, for a child to do something that they don't want to do. That does happen. And when that happens, what we can always do is split up the emotions from the actions, So how a child is feeling, their thoughts, you know, whatever is going on for them internally, that we can validate and we can show our child that we've heard them, we understand them. And then the action part sometimes has no choice to get done, right? Like, I get that you don't want to do all this. And also like, you know, this is what we're going to do. At times that does take place the same way, you know, let's say grocery shopping, right? I'd rather not go grocery shopping. I don't want to do this. And I am going to do my grocery shopping right now. You know what I mean? Sometimes that happens just part of life that we don't want to do something. And we're also going to do something. The thing is though, when a child tells us parents, oh, you know, I don't want to do this. Sometimes we can feel right away defensive. Oh my God, no, 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 we're doing this. We're so worried that because they feel a certain way, that means that the action is going to be like, they don't want to but we can actually calm our nervous system. Like this is the feelings. And then the action is what we're going to discuss about. And both of these things can take place at once. So 
I get you don't want to do this. I understand you. And this is what we're about to do. Is there any way I can help you through this? Because this is what we're about to do. So yes, to to answer your question, yes, I do feel that sometimes as parents, you know, sometimes a child needs a little push in a certain area to explore a certain way. So basically, yeah, my answer is yes. (laughs) There are moments. Yeah. Yeah. And that there's a spectrum of like willingness, right? And there are ways that we can improve and amplify their willingness, perhaps, you know, to exactly by making it, you know, more desirable. So I want to honor your time. I have one final question that's a little sort of meta, which is when we talk about some situations where a parent might know better than the child and can sort of have an empathic dialogue with them about how they can get in touch with, you know, this deeper sense of, you know, their own empowerment, even in the face of not wanting to engage necessarily, right? So that's like a t- tricky territory, even for us, right? Like, how do we know when to push ourselves and when to honor and meet ourselves where we are? And right, this idea of initiation to our adulthood is something I've been very interested in because culturally, you know, it's it's no longer a part of the fabric of our experience to initiate from adolescence to adulthood, right? For boys and for girls, we're not doing that. So you just sort of coast along in your childlike psychology, in your childlike methods of meeting needs. And then you find yourself in an adult body, in an adult lifestyle, still living as that, you know, as that child. So what do you think about the fact that, you know, there isn't really a passing of the baton from parent to child in the greater community where elders are, you know, bearing witness to this expansion into adulthood through the dissolution of the the childlike consciousness, which often requires a sort of death, right? Like a sort of way of being so that we can, you know, become who it is that we are destined to, to experience ourselves as, is that something you, you sort of consider? Yes. And I think a lot of us grow up when we realize that our parents have flaws, that certain parts of our childhood were not okay. And not to just brush it off and be like, oh, no, I'm okay. Everything's okay. No, that wasn't okay, right? What happened to us wasn't okay. The way we were treated wasn't okay. When we come to terms to that with that, and that can be really hard. It can be really hard because we can have this, you know, idealist image of our parents that we held on to from childhood. But when we face these things, I feel like that's one of those shells, you know, that keep us in that this childhood mindset that kind of breaks apart where hold on, that wasn't okay. And I don't want to repeat this. And I'm okay facing, I can love my parents. And I can also be really upset with, you know, the fact that they did certain things to me and growing through that. I think that would be like the first step of like this, like what you said, the childhood death, right? Like that part of us that's dying because as a child, our parents are perfect because we needed to survive, right? But the minute we grow up and we say, hey, that's far from perfect. That wasn't okay. Then, then we're breaking free. Then we're moving forward. You know, does this, does that answer your question? Totally. And and I'm thinking about how that awareness can hide in the phrase, oh, they did the best they could. Right. Exactly. So how do we hold the mixed object of like, yes, they did. And also this occurred and it's still occurring within me. Right. So exactly making contact with that. Yeah. So, yeah, I want to end on, on something you and I talked about before I started recording, which is just sort of how it's, there's no statute of limitations on repair and on taking uh, personal responsibility for the ways in which as parents, we haven't shown up when we, we ourselves knew better 
and to really sort of like offer this compassionate space of ongoing learning and self-awareness that I know you hold, you know, in your community and in your teachings that this we're doing this in real time, you know, we're figuring this out as we go. And, and I think you would agree, right? Like as we show up, you know, in this more conscious way with our kids, we're actually also healing ourselves and that part of ourselves within. Yes. Yes. As you're speaking, I also want to add to something that you mentioned as part of your question, where you started off as sometimes as parents, we feel like we know better than our child. So it's not so much that we feel we know better than our child. It's that sometimes the the difference between, you know, being too overbearing and pushing a child too much to do something versus giving them that extra push they need that we feel they need is when our child wants to do something. And then they're like, but I'm afraid, but I don't know if I'm going to be good. I don't know if this, so they have the desire to do something. And then there's all these things that are blocking them and that they're sharing with us. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to be good, but I'm going to fall. But I, then we need to coach our children through it. But if our child is telling us, I don't want to do this. I hate this. I don't like this. I don't like the sports. I don't like that. Then we need to back off, right? They need to figure out the other things that feel good to them, that resonate with them, that they want to do. So that's where I feel the difference where like as a parent, okay, I'm going to help you through this. Like I get it that you're afraid and we're also going to do this together. So again, what I said about splitting the actions and emotions, but here, what the difference is between me pushing my child to do something, manipulating them or trying to, you know, being overbearing is the fact that the child has no desire. Right. Versus what I mentioned when they have the desire, but then there's so many things that are feel conflicting in them, you know, to, to move forward. So I think that's, you don't pit them against their desire. Right. Which is in in my opinion, the root of a lot of sexual shame actually is like when you're pitted against your own desire and your own life force energy, and you're encouraged to develop an adversarial relationship or a power over relationship to it, you know? So that's, that's a very helpful clarification. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Amazing. Well, this has been, I mean, I just keep thinking of like the, the Rolodex of questions I could have asked. So I I hope that, you know, this was like a a showcase of the way that you marry this deep wisdom with very practical examples and practical approach. And really, like I said, a compassionate framework for the fact that it's like, it's kind of a tough love framework, you know, that you offer us as parents, you know, to get real about the ways in which we are perpetuating that, which we, you know, seek to resolve in our, our family lines. And also, you know, understanding that we're figuring it out because we, we went through a lot of this dysfunctional parenting and insecure attachment experiences as, as kids. So I'm so grateful you're out there, you're spreading the good word and make sure that people know where to find you in, in the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kelly. And I just want to circle back to what you said. It's never too late to always repair. We're humans, we're going to mess up. And there's always opportunity, opportunity to repair, opportunity to change, never too late. And something that you mentioned in the beginning privately is that even as adults, no matter our age, we would feel so good if our parents came to us and said, hey, you know, I want to hear how your experience was. I'm so sorry you, you experienced it that way. No matter how old we are, that will always feel good to us. So no matter where we're holding, you know, where we're holding with our children and our relationship, there's always, always space to repair and do better and shift and listen. And yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Amazing. Thank you, Kelly, for having me. Thank you.